Oh, God, that's why we're here, just to lift up our hearts in total praise to you. We've been in worship, and we're still in worship. And now, the intersection of your ancient word with our very contemporary living. Make it clear, dear God. Please make it clear. Hide me so that the Lord be praised. Amen. So what does this Black History Sabbath have to do with storm? I believe a racial storm is brewing in America. And I fear that the church is being entrapped in its angry vortex. Two exhibits. Exhibit A. This last June, the Pew Research Center released a new survey titled, On Views of Race and Inequality, Blacks and Whites Are Worlds Apart. The survey opens with these words on the screen. Almost eight years after Barack Obama's election as the nation's first black president, an event that engendered a sense of optimism among many Americans about the future of race relations, a series of flashpoints around the United States has exposed deep racial divides and reignited a national conversation about race. A new Pew Research Center survey finds profound differences between black and white adults in their views on racial discrimination, barriers to black progress, and the prospects for change. Blacks, far more than whites, say black people are treated unfairly across different realms of life, from dealing with the police to applying for a loan or mortgage. And for many blacks, racial equality remains an elusive goal, end quote. Let me run some numbers by you. Would that be okay? Take a look at the screen. So they, so they asked, they surveyed both groups and asked the question, are blacks treated less fairly than whites in America? And you'll see the white and the black response and the dif differentiation between those responses. How about in the workplace? Whites said, yeah, 22%. 22% of whites, yeah, blacks are treated unfairly. Blacks said, whoa, whoa, 64%. A spread of 42 points. How about when applying for a loan or a mortgage? Whites said, yeah, 25% of them said, yeah, they're probably black. 66%, a spread of 41 points. How about in the courts? Whites, 43. Black, 75. 32 points. How about in stores and restaurants? Whites, 21%. Yeah, unfair. Blacks, 49%. 28 points. How about when voting in elections? Whites, 20% versus blacks, 43%. 23 points. In other words, white Americans consistently underestimate the, the impact of unfair treatment on their black neighbors. Ah, oh, they're not treated that bad. And then they said that blacks are more likely than whites to say blacks have a harder time with whites in getting ahead. And here's how the blacks responded. Racial discrimination. <laughs> you know why I can't get ahead? Racial discrimination. 70% of blacks said, that's why I can't get ahead. Whites said, well, maybe it's 36% of the whites said, maybe they can't get ahead because of that. Lower quality schools. 75% of the blacks said, that's why we can't get ahead. Whites said, nah, that's probably only 53% of the reason why. Lack of jobs. 66% of blacks said, that's why I can't get ahead. Whites said, well, 45%. 
What did we read a moment ago from the Pew Research Center introduction? For many blacks, racial equality means an elusive goal. Well, you say, you know what? They just need to work harder. That's the problem. They need to get a work ethic. Are you serious? Do you even know the meaning of uphill climb? Exhibit B, friend of mine, Calvin Rock, African-American, strong preacher, skilled leader, longtime vice president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. In this month's issue, February 2017, of the Adventist Review, wrote a piece that speaks for itself. I'm going to read a few lines from it to you. One of our own speaking to us. It's been asked, even with hostility, what's the point in chanting that black lives matter when all lives matter? I answer that in spite of its disagreeable shock to the nation of America's social conscience. Black lives matter is, in principle and fact, gospel truth for at least three reasons. I'll share one of them with you. It is gospel truth because it reminds us that while those alive today had no part in yesterday's degraded trade in humans, in its 246 years of merciless servitude, in its 1787 decree that Negroes be counted as three-fifths of a human being, or in relegating them for more than half a century via separate but equal to life's most dangerous and undesirable places. That would be the back of the bus, the side of the restaurants, the front of the trains, the top of the theaters, the bottom of the boats. Putting this on the screen for you now. While America's majority population had nothing to do with all that, they are nevertheless greatly advantaged by the intellectual and material wealth passed down to them by those who did. Hmm. He goes on, Black Lives Matter is still a needed proclamation because in spite of today's welcome laws against injustice spawned by civil rights activities, there is much that speaks of a lesser regard for black lives. Now I raise my eyebrows. Is this? I didn't know this. The denial of updated textbooks in black neighborhoods. The limits of option that make black children drink and bathe in polluted water. The wrongful arrests, unjust sentences, and more frequent execution of blacks. And more. The grocery stores in black communities that sell inferior produce at higher prices. Legislation to depress the black vote. Absurd district gerrymandering. Politicians always refiguring their districts so that they can carve a, di- a, carve a group out. The hostility against affirmative action and the the delegitimizing of the nation's black president by angry whites who, quote, want their country back. Their country? Are you serious? Their country? The Black Lives motto is truth with the potential at least to shame heartless politicians who resist all efforts to provide the poor better health care and education and generally remind America that after centuries of the degradation forced upon them, people at least need straps, boots denied, in order to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. One more line on the screen. Black Lives Matter affirms that black America's attempt to catch up is too often frustrated by white America's unwillingness to give up. As he writes, awkward truth is still truth. 
Yeah, but I tell you what, they're always complaining about our failures. Have you noticed that? Our failures as whites, while ignoring their own failures. Calvin Rock, Calvin Rock African-American, turns the coin over. And in turning the coin over, he writes this. Black Lives Matter is the gospel truth in that it speaks relevantly to black Americans as well. It reminds them that change like charity begins at home and that they themselves set the patterns their children will follow. Apart from religion, education holds their highest hope of progress. And blacks don't have to wait on the government to assist their youth in academic pursuits. It is hypocritical to decry police brutality but do little or nothing about the black-on-black violence that costs between 8,000 and 9,000 lives each year. And Black Lives Matter speaks to the sad tragedy of our failure to overcome self-hatred, the inter-ethnic prejudice regarding so-called good hair and bad hair, light skin and dark skin, accent and no accent, all stigma surviving from the racial rules of yesteryear. This, too, is gospel truth. He goes on, Black Lives Matter is a reminder to black American youth that they destroy their individual and community's good by bringing into the world children born out of wedlock. The 2012 report of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control records that 17% of Asian, 29% of white, 53% of Hispanic, and 73% of black babies are born without stable homes. Neither that nor the dietary intemperance or lewd and violent mental entertainment established in so many black communities is the fault of white America. Neither is the national rate of black high school dropouts, approximately 50%, as compared to the general rate of 30%. I was tempted to leave the following sentence out, but I think I'm going to go ahead and read it. The Black Lives Motto, the, the Black Lives Matter motto is a scathing rebuke to professionally successful blacks who function within I got mine, now you get yours, attitude, who get lost amid the privileges of their education, often aided by some set-aside has brought them, who make no effort to reach back and help those climbing up, and who forget Isaiah 51.1, the rock from which they were hewn and the hole of the pit from which they were dug. He doesn't mince words with any of us, does he? Storm. Are we trapped in some sort of dark racial cyclone beyond rescue? I think not. Is Jesus able to infuse anything into our failure as whites and blacks? I think so. I think he can lift us out of this hole. Consider what's been our theme text in this little series called Storm. Open your Bible with me to the red-letter words of Jesus in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 5, our theme text. Turns out it also speaks to us now. John 15, verse 5, I'll be in the New King James Version. Whatever version you have is fine by me. Here we go. Jesus speaking, bright red. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, she who abides in me, and I in her, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. There they are again, the two sides of God's exquisitely expensive salvation coin. Side one, we are in Christ. Side two, Christ is in us. Jesus said, yo, you, you people, you and me, and let me be in you, and you will bear fruit. You will bear stunning fruit for my glory in this nation. What's he talking about? Let me show you. 
The upper room discourse where these words come from, I remind you, these red-letter words of Jesus were spoken 12 hours before his brutal execution on Calvary. The upper room discourse, familiar, almost totally read from chapter 13 to chapter 17, is actually bookended. Get this, two bookends. Striking posture of Jesus in both bookends. Listen, John 13, we find Jesus on his knees before his disciples. And in John 17, we, fi- we find Jesus on his knees before his father. What's called an inclusio. It's, it's two bookends to keep intact what's in between. And isn't it amazing that his posture in John 13 is the huge clue to the answer of his prayer in John 17? Let me show you what I mean. The backstory to Jesus being on his knees before his disciples is found in one single line. If Luke hadn't written it, we wouldn't know it. Let me put it on the screen for you. Luke 22, that upper room, verse 24. Now there was in that upper room also a dispute among Jesus' disciples as to which of them should be considered the greatest. I mean, which of us is superior to the others? Which of us is the leader over the others? Which of us is number one in this community? And so Jesus gets up from the table strips naked to his waist, grabs a towel, and begins to wash their feet. Just turn the page back. Chapter 13. Pick it up in verse 4. Here's the actual record. Jesus, verse 4, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus performs, get this, Jesus performs the menial task of a slave. Why? Because nobody wants to be a slave. Former slaves don't want to be slaves. Slave masters don't want to be slaves. So nobody is going to bow down and admit that maybe I have a weakened self-confidence. I have an uncertainty of my self-worth, and I would accede to an observation that I'm a slave. Nobody bows down. Nobody can break the log jam that night in that upper room. Because nobody wants to be a slave, not former slaves and not masters. Nobody will be a slave. When Jesus is through washing their feet, Jesus, the slave, resumes his place at the table and he issues, get this, he issues the 11th commandment. It's just happened, the washing of the feet. And then he speaks. Drop down. You're in, you're in chapter 13. Drop down to verse 34. Bright red letters here. Jesus speaking. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. What you just saw me do, what you just saw me do, you. You do this. My love for you, your love for each other. You also Love one another. Verse 35, by this, by the way, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This some sort of isolated, warm, fu- fuzzy moment before he gets on with the, with the meat of his upper room discourse? Are you kidding? 
go back to our go back to our theme text, John 15:5. Look what happens right after John 15:5. We'll read verse 5 of John 15 again. I am the vine, you are the branches. The people who abide in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. There it is again. Obviously not a, just a passing notion. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants. I'm not calling you slaves, for a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And oh, by the way, verse 16, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Never forget, I chose you to reflect me. I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. One last line, verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. This is much on his heart, hours before his execution. So here's the question. How else are we going to reach, as a church of black and white, how else are we going to reach America? I need you to just think this through with me for a moment. If the country cannot turn to the church and in this faith community discover on bold display the self-sacrificing love of Jesus lived out between the races, why should the country give a hoot for the message that this, that this church has been raised up to proclaim? <laughs> Let me put it another way. If America cannot turn to Adventists to see a community where radical, self-sacrificing love of Jesus is being lived out among us, why would anybody in their right mind give two bits for what this movement stands for? You'd be crazy to. If we don't practice what we preach, you might as well quit preaching. You might as well quit preaching because we're not practicing, so why preach? Who cares about your theology? Who cares about your beautiful educational system? Who cares about your health care system that belts the planet? Who cares about your doctrinal beliefs? Because if what you believe leaves you as fractured as this nation, you can have it. So what does this mean for my faith community, our faith community? I'm going to surprise you right now. By not bringing up the separate but equal conferences that exist only in the United States and are organized by race rather than geography. I'm not going to bring it up. Although now that you did, let me just say, no. no. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. No, I've already preached twice on that extremely sensitive subject in the past. And apparently those two sermons created such a firestorm among my African-American colleagues and friends in ministry, as well as my non-African-American colleagues and friends in ministry, that I said to myself, I get it. I get it. This is the third rail of the 
American Adventist Church. And you do know what the third rail is, don't you? It's the, ra- it's the rail that has power. You touch it, you're dead. So nobody touches ever the third rail. And what's the point of continually electrocuting yourself? So I'm not bringing it up. I give you a new commandment. That you love one another. Because the way you love one another, the whole world will know the truth about me. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? It's time to quote Moses. It's time to let my people go. They're not being held captive by forces outside the church. It's time for the church to let my people go. There's a dark and brewing storm that is engulfing and will totally engulf America one day. A broiling racial storm of anger and subjugation and retaliation. Let us not be fooled into naively concluding that somehow this storm that explodes will just pass by the church. She will not be exempt. We will not be exempt. It will be the ultimate tragedy of this faith community if when that dangerous storm strikes, the country will not be able to turn to this church in order to find refuge in the love and equality of Almighty God. It will be the ultimate tragedy. If they can't find racial unity here, I ask you, where do they go? Politics? Are you crazy? The good news is that all it takes will be one man to stand up and show us the way. And the good news is that one man has already stood up and shown us the way. Which is why in the shadow of Calvary, Jesus prays the prayer in the second bookend on his knees before the Father. Just turn a page to John 17. We heard these words in Afrikaans. Thank you, Lawrence. A moment ago, the language of South Africa which has its own struggles. This is uh, John 17, bright red, Jesus praying to the Father, Father, I do not pray for these alone, his disciples, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That's everybody here because we believe in him because of their word. Verse 21, that they, my followers, may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. Whoa, this thing works more than we thought. I thought it was me in Christ, Christ in me. But Jesus says, no, no, no. It's, it's you in me and me and the Father in you. Heaven steps in to this equation, the Father himself. Oh, Father, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Well, what will it take to answer that prayer? I'll tell you what it'll take. It'll take one man. It'll take one woman. It will take one young adult. It will take one teenager. It will take one leader. It will take one administrator. 
It will take one school. It will take one congregation, one person to stand up and put it all on the table and say to the others and to the Lord Jesus, I put it all there. It's all there. You may have it. My prerogatives, my privilege, my possessions. You have it. Myself, my reputation. You have it. You may do whatever you wish with me. I'm putting it all on the table. All of it. For you. Use it. It's when a man, it's when a woman is willing to give it all up out of unselfish love for the other or for the others that social institutions are radically changed. Just ask Martin Luther King. Just ask Mahatma Gandhi. Just ask Jesus. Just ask Paul, who wrote the line that all four of them believed in. When I am weak, then... I think we're getting that up on the screen. Then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. The only way our racial logjam is going to be broken as if somebody puts it all on the table. And, and until that somebody does, listen carefully now, until that somebody does, ain't nobody going home. Nobody's going home. You know why nobody will be going home? Because nobody's coming for you. Nobody's coming for you. It'd be like what my principal said. Our academy principal, when he caught us boys tinkering with electric bills, electric bells rather, in the dormitory, setting them off at 4 o'clock in the morning, he said, boys, nobody's leaving this room until I find out who did it. Nobody's going home. And that's what God's saying. Ain't nobody going home. Nobody. Until you get this. You know enough. You have enough. You are enough. What are you waiting for? Me to do it? I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't. I made you free. You're not a slave. You will have to freely give it all up. Put it on the table and walk away and say, you may have that and do whatever you wish. I'm not coming until you kids figure this thing out. And you know what? I happen to believe him. I believe he's not coming. It'll just be one storm after another. They'll all get worse. And he keeps waiting. I give you a new commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. By this the whole world will know you are my people. If you are one, even as the Father and I are one. So how does it work? Let me introduce you to two new friends of mine, Richard and Betty Moore. I want to invite them to come forward. Richard Moore is the associate treasurer of the Lake Union Conference. That's the, uh, the Great Lake States. It's a great part of the world to be living in. And Betty is nurse practitioner, practicing right here in uh, Barron County. So rich. I read your article. I read their story in the Lake Union Herald. And I really appreciate you being here. Man, this childhood that you grew up with, San Diego. I mean, come on, explain it to, to the folks, please. I want to give a shout-out to Debbie Michelle from the Lake Union also who helped craft that article. Beautiful. But growing up as a kid in San Diego, I didn't have a, a real Christian experience. Mm -hmm. uh, my single mom, who had five kids, uh, just going through life and aimlessly. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, one day she met my uh, to be future to be stepdad mm-hmm. at a bar. Just mm. uh, having a good time, and he mm-hmm. comes home. He becomes part of our life. Mm-hmm. This African American man mm-hmm. who was an alcoholic. Mm. He he would drink a lot, and when he would drink, he was a very unpleasant person. Mm. Not somebody you want to hang around. And that was very bothersome to our family. And I began to pray to a God that I did not know. Mm-hmm. I was not a churchgoer. God, this man is horrible. Get him out of our life. Mm. And I would pray that every day. I'd pray that every week. Mm. I prayed it for over three years. And then God finally did answer that prayer. This is, this is an incredible part of your story. The answer was no. I'm not going to get him out of your life, but we're going to change him Hmm. from a roaring lion into a little pussycat. Hmm. One day, an angel visited his bedside, he told us, and said, Mitch, get your life together and go back to the Adventist church that you have come from. Hmm. Be a parodical son and go back home. Hmm. And so he gathers us together that one Saturday morning with his five new white children and white wife to attend the San Diego 31st Street, a a black Adventist church. Mm -hmm. And we are there and we are welcomed with open arms. Mm -hmm. He being recognized as who he was before and now with a new family Mm -hmm. bringing a new group Mm -hmm. to this church family. And they welcomed us. They loved us. They embraced us. They just loved you. You loved them back. You came to love them back. I mean, that's your, that's your new, new home. Your stepdad gets baptized, rebaptized for him, and you get baptized on that journey. After having some Bible studies and following, follow, following, following in love mm-hmm. with the Bible, mm-hmm. I wanted to make a commitment to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I, too, was baptized a little bit later. Wow. Yeah. So, African American Church, San Diego, we got the picture so these colleges, these universities, like to send recruiting teams out. Turns out the only, the only college that sent a recruiting team to your church was... It was not Andrews. It was not Andrews, okay. <laughs> only Oakwood College, okay. Oakwood University, mm-hmm. now came to recruit at that mm-hmm. church. Now, what did your people tell you? The uh, congregation says, Richard, we love you so much. We want to help you to go to Oakwood mm-hmm. to study theology, to mm-hmm. study to become a pastor, to become a preacher. And so much so that we're going to help pay the way there. Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? So this little congregation raises the money. You go off to Oakland. This is one of my favorite moments in your story as well. So you're standing in front of the dean. He's a next, next, and and then he looks up at you. He looks up at me and asks a rather interesting question. Are you sure you're at the right place? Uh, shouldn't you be maybe a hundred miles east? That'd be at Southern Adventist. Southern yeah. Adventist. And my response was, well, this is Oakwood. So, yes, then I'm at the right place. Yeah, incredible. So you, you double major, theology and business, five years, you're going to school, and you go into ministry. You want to be a treasurer, a pastor, then maybe end up as a treasurer someday. And you end up here at uh, Andrews University. So I'm going to come over here to Betty. Betty, so you are a girl from, a young woman from South Chicago. Yes. You went to Broadview Academy. Yes. A rather uh, homogeneous sort of uh, academy there in the farm fields of Illinois. Yes. But you're here, Betty. And I'll just tell the story about how you met Richard. 
So um, I met Richard through my roommate. Mm -hmm. Uh, The two of them worked together in the communications department here at Andrews University. At the time, they still had a switchboard. I don't know if they still have that now, but uh, they worked together. Mm -hmm. And it was located in the administration building down in the basement. Gotcha. And I was studying nursing, and so every day I had to make that trek over to the um, science complex. So I would divert off and go say hi to my roommate, Nikki, whenever she was on duty. Mm -hmm. And that particular day... um, Richard happened to come into the office when I was visiting Nikki and I'm generally friendly to everybody so hi how are you Um, that was about the extent of that conversation and Mm -hmm. then I finished my visit with my friend and I left well it turns out later I found out that he expressed interest in me Hmm. so who is that (laughs) so my roommate always trying to fix me up uh, had (laughs) decided that she would play matchmaker. Mm -hmm. So she gave him our phone number at the dorm. We didn't have cell phones back then. And uh, she told um, me later that he will be calling you and you be nice to him. So... He did call, and we had a wonderful conversation. He asked me out on a date, and I said, well, um, not quite sure. I don't know you that well. How about we go on a double date with my roommate and her boyfriend? And hmm. so he was fine with that, and we um, got together, had a wonderful time. I fell in love with him. He's a wonderful man, God-fearing man, hmm. um, just, just a wonderful person, and the rest is history. Praise God. Mm-hmm. Praise God. I'm gonna end, I want to... Uh, one more, one more incident, uh, Richard. So you two, you know, get married, and you're working in Wisconsin Conference because you're going to help out with Treasury there, and Pat, you're going around preaching. So one wintry Sabbath. Yes, one wintry Sabbath, and, and maybe it wasn't necessarily just one time. Mm. And I imagine it probably wouldn't have been restricted just to Wisconsin. Mm. Across the nation, probably something similar would have happened. Mm-hmm. On that cold, wintry Sabbath, uh, I would be a nice gentleman and drop my wife off at the front door so that she could go inside and not be uh, confronted with the misery of going through a a Mm snow-packed parking lot. She goes there. She's not greeted. She's not invited to sit anywhere. She finds her own way. Mm -hmm. I get out of my car after finding a spot, and I walk in and say, hey, I'm the Richard, I'm the guest speaker for today. Oh, hello, how you doing? Let's guide you to the right place to be. Treats me quite differently than how they treated my wife. Mm. Later, when uh, I was introduced as speaker and my wife was invited to stand, she was treated quite differently at the end of service than where she was at the very beginning. Mm. And that sort of breaks our heart a little bit, that we have a tendency to treat people differently because of how they look. Mm. I think the, question, the, the rap question, Richard, is we're a university congregation here, got a lot of people watching from all over. What do we do? Do you have, any, do you have an appeal? Do you have some counsel for us? Yes. I, I would like to appeal to all of us to treat each other as God's children. Hmm. We are all princes and princesses of the king of the universe. And we need to treat everybody the same way. If you're uncomfortable with somebody that maybe looks a lot different than you, 
then make a sacrifice and go out of your way and spend time with them, eat with them, play with them, hang out with them to get to know them better so that somehow, some way, Jesus can soften your heart. To understand somebody, we need to spend time with them, just like our relationship with Jesus. Mm. If we're not spending time with him, then we're not knowing him. Yeah. Let's spend time with different people. Amen. Beautifully put. Betty and Richard, both of you, thank you for sharing your testimony with us. What a beautiful story. Ladies and gentlemen, give them a hand of gratitude for that. Bless you. What did you just see? You saw two people of different races who, through love, are brought together, and it is love that makes the two races one. That's it. That's what God's waiting for. Pull out your Connect card, would you please? And let's think for a moment, where do I go? What, sh- what, what should I do? Connect card's found in your worship bulletin. Turn it over to the My Next Step Today side of the card. Box number one. I want to answer Jesus' prayer to love and care for those who are racially different from me. You know what that means. And I, I, I hope... I hope your heart joins me in saying, yep, I want to be that way. I want to be just like Jesus. I want to answer that prayer to care for those who are racially different from me. Now, that's, the, that's an easy box. You just, you got it down. Look at box two. Box number two, I will invite them for dinner. Who's the them? Those who are racially different than me. If I'm white, I'm going to invite a black family over. If, if I'm black, then I'm going to invite a white family over, or a red, or yellow, brown. It doesn't matter. I'm going to invite somebody. Because Richard's absolutely right. It's when we, it's when we, when we sit around the table together that that's when hearts are most open to each other. That's my favorite part of a Sabbath is sitting around your table and just hearing your stories. And there's something that just gets united in that moment. So when you put a check mark there, don't just lose this, turn it in, say, well, that's good, I'll forget about it. No, 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 no. If you need to keep the card, keep the card, take it home, remind yourself. That's a strategy you and your family would like to embrace. Uh, Number three, I want to enlarge my sphere of influence for Christ by meeting and connecting with new people through a new grow group or inviting them to join a grow group with me. Financial Peace University, you just heard a bit about it with Brian and Rob. It'd be wonderful if we could all sign up. I don't think we can get everybody into that space, but uh, uh, you know what? If you can't think of anything else, and I've been to this uh, menu, some beautiful choices, so you pick what you want. But if you couldn't think of anything else, Financial Peace uh, University. You see the little website and one of those options there? Go to the website. Do it all online. You don't need to put it down here. Just go to the website, type it in, bingo, and... uh, 15 seconds, you'll be registered for that class. We're going to have an incredible winter into spring together. Grow groups, grow groups, grow groups. I invite you to become a part of the experience. And by the way, grow groups are intergenerational and interracial. Yeah, we don't have select little grow groups. We're all in this journey together. I hope you'll be a part of it. I don't know if you've been noticing the baptisms we've been having. It's coming up again and again. I was in a grow group. I was in a grow group because grow groups, Pastor Sabine, are not only about entertaining ourselves. Grow groups are about reaching out into the world around us and bringing people to Jesus. So put a check mark there. And number four. You say, Dwight, there's not a number four. Oh, there is on mine. I want to join collective prayer for unity in my faith community. 
collective prayer. Don't just pray on your own. I want to invite you to come. We just have started this Wednesday mornings at 7 o'clock in the youth chapel, Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary. You want to come and share a prayer that Jesus' prayer in John 17 will be answered by the way we live and love? Come and join us. You'll be blessed. And now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.